Hello. Hello. Huh? <sighs> hmm. Hmm. We're recording at a different time this week. Yeah, we're recording at a different everything this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. How are you feeling? Still sick. Ugh. Like it's just it's just holding on. Set me free, why don't you, babe? Yep, yep, yep. I just kept needing to blow my nose for a very long time. Yeah, that's what I've got going on. Like it would flare up for a while. It was flaring up and making me feel loopy and fevery and terrible. But now it's just back to no. You just got rain nose, some cough, some stuff. It's like just just let go. It's trying to help. Hmm. You know, it's uh, it's doing what it's supposed to do. But you can't blame the snot. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's getting me ready for uh, the big one, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, hmm. yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, you know what it is? It's like, okay, um, again, as a reform project manager, you know, we don't, we don't plan for things to go well. I'm not going to say we plan for things to go poorly, but we do plan for contingencies. And I, don't, I do not find it reassuring. I, I realize that sounds like I'm just a, a regular simp for listening to anything this administration says, but, um, the, it's, 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 it's more that like, I wish, I wish we could admit that this was a thing that was going on, deal with it appropriately, a little more transparently. And it's just, you know, I just keep waiting for all these grenades that are rolling around. One of them's eventually going to go off or not, not maybe, you know, but even if this, even if this is not a big deal and it is quote unquote, just like the cold, well, it's, it is revealing or constantly re-revealing how, um, I'm sorry, it's late. Uh, <laughs> it's so late. Uh, it's constantly revealing like how ill-prepared our infrastructure is for almost anything. And, you know, it's, you don't want to become that person that slides into constant like authoritarian, you know, comparisons. But if you can't trust information about public health, at a time when it is apparently just getting worse, and all you're worried about really is the stock market, not even the economy, the stock market. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's really, uh, that's, that in some ways right now is the scariest part. To say, to say, well, it isn't that bad yet. <laughs> well, that's, that's when you take care of it so it doesn't get bad. No, I'm, I'm checked out of that whole thing, like uh, as of whatever it was that, like weeks ago, maybe it was even months ago, when I saw all the scientists saying, yeah, X percentage of the Earth's population is going to get this, and there's nothing we can do to stop it. I'm like, all right, well, that sounds about right. So all that's left is exactly how bad it's going to be. But in terms of doing anything to to change that basic fact, it's probably not, certainly nothing that individuals can do. I feel like it's some, you know, Well, it's not something individuals should do. Yeah. That's why we have government. Or, <laughs> yeah, government or whatever, they could do better or worse, but it's... There's nothing I don't think anybody can do to make it not be a problem. It's just a question of how big a problem. Well, it's be. okay, but here, like, I'll tell you where it, I feel like it, it took a turn for me or where it suddenly seemed very real. This very veep moment, which I'm sure you've seen, is that video of the two guys in Iran uh, giving the press conference. And one of the guys is like visibly looking ill and mopping his brow. And then that's, that's like the head of the health department, I guess, in Mm -hmm. Iran. Anyway, the next day he, you know, outs himself as saying, oh yeah, I've totally got coronavirus. Now, okay, so that was pretty weird and pretty deep, but here's, here's the part that I think, 
I don't know. Um, yes, a lot of people are going to get sick, but here's the problem. I don't think we currently know exactly, not only how many people have it, but exactly how long like the sort of like incubation is. In that case, he did not get, I don't think got diagnosed until he had already been like in a cabinet meeting. Yeah, no, there's nothing you can do to stop the spread. Like there's nothing. But there's... what that what that tells me is, and I'm I'm copying some of this from health professionals, but what I'm copying from getting from this is that uh there are gonna be a ton of cases that are gonna come seemingly quote unquote out of nowhere in the next days. Right. I mean it's just like getting the cold. Like you don't you don't you can never know where you got it from because you you blame the person who you know who has a cold, but But you you're not you're not hearing me. What what I'm what I'm saying is you need to instead of saying this is not a problem, move along, everything is fine, you need to say stuff like you need to get in front of this and stand in, a, uh, in front of a mic on TV and say, listen, there's a bunch of people who are sick. There's going to be more people who get sick. We're, that means we're getting better at discovering people who are sick. I mean, yes, it's spreading. But like, there are, are cases. talking about in our country? You're waiting for somebody yes. to say that? Well, <laughs> well, but this is, this is my concern. Because uh-huh. the thing is, in the next few days, you're going to hear an explosion in the number of reported cases, mm-hmm. which is going to make people think Unless there's somebody there to sort of guide that message and say, well, this is part of the process. No, there's no, there's none of those people here. Sorry. No. Oh, yeah, no, there's no one going to, yeah. That, that's the, like, the response thing is, like, you can, there's messaging that you can, you can do. There's actual preparation that you can do. There's all sorts of things you can do to mitigate. Uh, there's nothing you can do to stop the spread, but there's a lot you can do to sort of handle it better. And nobody, <laughs> we don't have anybody in this country who's going to fulfill that leadership role so we're on our, we're kind of on our own yeah it's like to, to para, but to paraphrase an old joke and you know i'm always on with the infrastructure stuff but to paraphrase an old uh, off-color joke it's as though we've lost the recipe for ice you know mm-hmm. it's like we, we somehow like we've managed with a lot of like in the case of uh, hiv and aids that was you know a willful neglect at a mm-hmm. political level this is this is a willful in terms of like if i if i close my eyes you can't see me kind of invisibility cloak Thing. Until it starts killing, like some percentage of your yeah, yeah. Base. Well, then you just blame you just blame Mexico. Then it's fine. Yeah, it's all these people who are trying to like screw with them. Exactly, they're trying to get across the border. They made it us all sick. Mm-hmm. I tried to stop them. I did everything I could. No, I know. It's just, yeah, yeah. He's he's looking for his keys there because the light's better. The only silver lining is that uh, he's highly likely to get it too. So mm-hmm. at least he'll have a have a stuffy nose for a while. Wow. But, I mean, more more than usual. You're gonna be canceled. <laughs> more than usual level of sniffing. Who would be able to tell? It'll, you know. <laughs> Very strongly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was the other thing I was thinking about? Yeah, it's also just, it's pretty wild though. Cause like, I don't know if you saw yesterday on Twitter, a bunch of people like posting photos from Costco where everybody seems to have gone to have the same freak out at the same time and like filling their cart with all of these things. Like today I thought, oh, you know, it would be kind of nice to have like a pump hand sanitizer we have, we have instituted preschool levels of hand washing at the house where I am yeah. now, I am now insisting by fiat that we do in every transition hand washing, you know, when we wash, when we eat, when we, whatever we do, whenever we go from one thing to another, you know, it's like I used to say mm-hmm. on a Mac, you save every, every paragraph and every time you think of it. Yeah. That, that'll, that, the people who are preparing and everything like that, like there's, there's fairly straightforward ways to not get it, but they all involve not leaving your house for a very long period of time. I'm totally, I'm totally into that. But all I was going to say was there is no hand sanitizer to be found right now. Yeah, I know. But, but see, you're, you're totally into that. And I'm totally into that. The problem is we both live with people who routinely leave the house and mingle with other people. And yeah. so we're screwed. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like, I you know, if you're, if you're a hermit who lives by yourself and you're okay with not leaving your house for a month, you won't get it. 
You'll be fine. I can't tell if you merely enjoy apocalyptic media or or welcome it in reality because you seem pretty sanguine about this. It's just it's just frustrating that like that there actually is not, like it's a situation where to be able to avoid this entirely, not that the risk is tremendously high, but to be able to avoid it, you need to have such incredible, uh, incredibly unique circumstances. Not only do I not have a job that I have to leave the house, but I also only live with people who don't have to leave the house. And that's not true of any family with school age kids. So right away, huge swaths of the public is eliminated. That's that's dangerously close to black and white thinking. I mean, just because like like there's something in our notes down here somewhere where I was talking about security and I says, just, you know, just because it's not a vault, does that mean we shouldn't close the screen door? Like anything you can do to do the better than worse thing. I think you're on the right track. It doesn't mean you're going to be 100% protected, but that's not how adulthood works. I know, but like I'm wondering if it's more than zero. Like, I mean, we've all seen the Mythbusters episode where the people all try to wash their hands and, and not transmit germs. And it's just like, germs are really small. Mm, <laughs> like yeah. they're, you can't get them all. And with the viruses, unlike bacteria, it just takes the one. <laughs> it's not like bacteria where you get one bacteria and it gets into your body, one little cell, it'll probably get killed. The virus... You don't need a lot of it. It's, I mean, there's a reason we all get colds. Right? Now, another thing is, here's the thing. Sometimes you go through a winter season and you don't get a cold. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you didn't get the cold virus. Just maybe you were asymptomatic or yep. whatever. Like, yep. And this will be mm-hmm. the same deal. It's just like, it would, it would almost feel better if it was like one of those apocalyptic ones where it's like, when you get it, you break out in purple spots and die within a week. Like, like with then Ebola, you know when you disintegrate. Yeah, then you mm-hmm. know if you got it, first of all. Which, yeah. Whereas now we'll just never know, like, because you may get it, especially kids, like, get it and don't really show symptoms, which is, which is a relief to me. I enjoy reading about that, you know, that this is less harmful the younger you are, uh, although they're all just, like, evil carriers now, right? Because they mm-hmm. have no symptoms and they just pass it on to you, right? It's and, like a but, gig economy for virus. Yeah, and, and so, like, you won't even know if all the things that you're doing helped at all because it's just the nature of the, the thing. Um, but like the, the, if you want to do something in terms of like, what can you do to help like leaving the house less? I mean, that can't hurt, right? <laughs> like, like the whole point is you don't want to be where, be where it is not, mm-hmm. you know, if it's not already in your house and if somehow by dumb luck, it doesn't get brought into your house by one of those people who leaves the house, including you, uh, then yeah. And you know, hand washing is good in general anyway. So like, it's, you're not doing any certainly not doing any harm there unless your skin's getting dried out Mm -hmm. right there's plenty of other things that you could be getting and just you know good habits so Mm -hmm. thumbs up thumbs up to doing it for sure Mm -hmm. uh it just i'm sort of depressed about the the relative futility of the exercises i'm just you know we're all just sitting here it's like like sitting here waiting for a wave to crash on the beach like there's nothing you can do to stop the wave from crashing on the beach and especially you know like could we leave the beach like Mm, you could, but, uh, you know, work is at the beach and it's like, you, you can't, like everyone just can't, the world can't stop. Like if everyone just said time out, world stops for one month and no one leaves the house mm-hmm. and somehow I hope you all have enough food. Uh, but that's not the way the world works. So we're all just gonna keep doing what we do until all the schools are closed and the oh offices boy. are closed. And Oh boy. Talk about cabin fever. Woof. <sighs> Yeah, closing the uh, barn door after the horse has left. And mm-hmm. Already, like, uh, uh, some students came back from an international trip recently. They're not allowed back at school. Hmm. And it's like, okay, I understand the thinking there. 
but are their parents also not allowed to go to work? I know. Okay, well, listen. I'm, I got two, well, Okay, we, got, we can't make this the whole show. I got two things about this. Number one, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to virtue signal for a second. And um, I have to admit that uh, I, I will agree with, with a lot of uh, similarly flimsy-minded progressives. I, I think it's so depressing when we say stuff like, oh, it's only going to affect people uh, who are vulnerable. You're right, right. It's only like, the weak only, will yeah, die. Yeah, yeah, I mean, listen, <laughs> if, you're, if you're young and healthy, this is not anything to worry over much about. It's only those people who are very... Who have like compromised immune systems? Like old people over fifty, like I mean. Well, I think yeah, old people. This is something they're just gonna have to deal with, man. Because you know, what are you gonna do? That's it's so like. Are you? Do you hear yourself when you say that? Sound that sounds so insane. It's 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 not entirely different from the whole like. Well, you know, these kinds of random traffic stops don't affect white people, so it's not a Mm -hmm. problem. Mm Yeah, that someone had a good tweet about it. It was about immune uh, immune suppressed people, Mm -hmm. and the person was like, you know, we can read. (laughs) <laughs> right. right like people are tweeting about don't worry about it only you don't have to worry about it if you're immune suppressed or whatever it's like you know we can we can read we're immune suppressed listen, but we can still read listen everybody calm down these fluctuations in the economy are not going to affect very rich and upper middle class people that's right it will only affect the most vulnerable It'll only so it's affect fine. the people who are i don't only, know not really up to it from a societal people standpoint who deserve to die well i mean you know they don't they call it charles dickens for a reason uh, and then what was my other point um, about the uh, – oh, okay. So let me ask you this. I have not bothered to look this up, but I, I think it's interesting. How much do you understand about how quarantine works? Uh, very little. Well, okay. So I should probably just look this up. But they keep talking about like when the people came back from China. So the whole thing that happened out here in California where people – I think it was that people came back from China <clears throat> and they were quarantined. And I, I think – this is this was the source of that exposure where government workers had been untrained and didn't have proper equipment. Mm-hmm. But they described it as being like people that were basically in like an airplane hangar or something. Um, here's my question about quarantine. What I don't understand. It's it's not okay. So you know the thing that drives me craziest in the entire goddamn world is that big barrel full of like you know you go through TSA and mm-hmm. they say your three ounces of liquid could be a shoe bomb mm-hmm. so you can't take it on the plane okay what are you mm-hmm. gonna do with it you can take it off site and like explode it in some kind of a off-site <laughs> facility no we're gonna throw it in a barrel with all the other explosive liquids mm-hmm. because that's a that's a real thing that we believe is that those are explosive so therefore we're gonna concentrate all the explosives in this one barrel They'll, well yeah the, the actual explosives will be cushioned by all the water around them Oh, well, I see. Like when they when they fill up those buffer things on freeways with sand. It's, it's or water. homeopathy for terrorism. <laughs> you know what your problem is? You're taking too much. <laughs> reduce, reduce. Yeah. Um, no, dilute, dilute. That's it. Um, but okay, so in quarantine, then I mean, when you quarantine somebody, here's how quarantine makes sense to me. Quarantine makes sense to me when you say you there's a high likelihood that the people in this have, the people in this group have been exposed to this, and so we need to make sure. The most sensible thing is we need to make sure that they don't go out, um, you know, into the world, into their community, and potentially pass this on to other people. That, I completely understand that. Now, here, here's the thing. How many of the people in that quarantine, well, let, let me be Sherlock Holmes for a second, or, or Plato or somebody. You've got, you've got a bunch of people. Let's say you've got 10 people in a quarantine. Okay, how many of those people definitely have coronavirus? Well, none. Because then they'd be in like a hospital facility being treated for coronavirus. Okay. How many of those people don't have it? 
well, we don't know. That's, that's what quarantine is for. You bring a dog to England, they're going to have to go live in this, uh, you know, quarantine facility for a while. Now, here's my question. How quarantined from other people are you? Because you get back to that airport liquid situation, you only need one person now with coronavirus to give it to those nine other people. Are they kept in cells? How do you, in a quarantine, how do you keep people separated such that one ill person won't make those other potentially healthy people sick? I'm, my guess is, based on the way most of these things work out, economically speaking, is, is that it's like the height of luxury to be able to individually isolate people in a quarantine situation. It would probably only be done if it was something like an incredibly uh, deadly disease with, you know, I don't, I can't, I don't know any diseases. Ebola is a good one to pick, but any, any kind of sort of disease where we have no treatment and, and the fatality rate is incredibly high, um, that they would like individually isolate for something mm-hmm. like this, I, I feel like the main function of the quarantine is to contain the illness. And so I think they care much less whether it spreads within the quarantine group is the whole idea. <laughs> yeah, you're just, you're just SOL. <laughs> yeah, it's just like you are all quarantined together. And if you all get it and it and we'll treat you and everything and it runs through all, you know, we just want it to run its course in your group until you're all clear. Then you can be released back into the population. Now, during that time... It's worse if you don't have it to be trapped in this airplane hanger with the one person who does. Yeah. But this, I mean, the way this thing transmits, if you stay 12 feet away from each other and Mm -hmm. don't touch each other's stuff, Mm -hmm. like if you just draw, if you just did like a Brady Bunch paint, uh, masking tape on the floor, like squares that are 20 feet square. Like a Lucy and Ricky type situation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's conceivable Mm. that all these people could be in the hangar and one or two people could have it and the rest could actually not get it. Right. Yeah. And so, but, but, but I think uh, my, again, I already said I had no very little about this. I would imagine that we do not have the luxury or the budget to individually Mm. hermetically seal individual people. The main function is you keep you guys out of society, like the, you know, the cruise ship quarantine or all those other things. Like, yeah, that's primarily going to be a public health amelioration. Like we, we don't want this going back into the community. Right. And, and the people who are in it, we're like, uh, I'm pretty sure I don't have it. So can I just get away from all these sick people? And it's like, well, yeah. are you sure? Sure. Because we're not totally sure. And like the tests aren't that good. And the tests are also expensive, by the way. So it would cost a lot of money to test all you individually. So the easiest thing to do is just to keep you all here together. You guys stay away from each other as best you can. But in general, you just can't come out here with us. And then, mm-hmm. of course, having having a bunch of people without protective equipment helping you. <laughs> and then they go out into society is just typical government yeah, competence. Go and go and stay at this Marriott. It'll be fine. Um, so the so there's been reporting tonight uh, that um, that there was a, I don't know if you call it a whistleblower, but someone fairly high up, I guess, reported concerns about the tests that had been prepared. I think at CDC in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. May, did you see yep. this? May have been yep. yeah contaminated, which doesn't sound good. Now, now let me hear. I'm going to bring up a phrase you might not have heard in a while. You remember chicken pox parties? Mm-hmm. I sure do. Pox parties. Because um, this was a thing. This sounds so crazy now. But the idea was that if there was one kid in the family or the group, you know, <clears throat> the friend cohort who got this, you'd have all your kids like do a sleepover with the express purpose of everybody getting sick at the same mm-hmm. time. And it worked. The system worked. What I'm saying here is that I obviously I am not a physician. I do watch Grey's Anatomy, so I'm pretty good with the vocabulary. But uh, the... It seems to me that if you're not quarantining those people into very separate, deliberate areas, uh, you basically just create a coronavirus party. Uh, it doesn't transmit through the air like chicken box does. Well, it does. Like, it's, yeah. it's, 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 uh, you get it through your nose, right? 
Yeah, you got to you got to have like a, a like a sneeze droplet uh, mm-hmm. land on your eyes or nose or mouth, right? So you you got to basically a sneeze radius. And of course, if someone sneezes on a surface and then you touch that surface, then you touch your eyes, nose, or mouth, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not airborne like measles and chickenpox is. So just yeah. being in the room with someone breathing on you is not sufficient. So it is not as transmissible mm-hmm. as chickenpox. And I'm either I went to one. I don't know if I went to one of the chickenpox parties, but I remember having. I had legit chickenpox when I was a kid. I don't know if I got it from a party, but I so remember those those parties you know i was very young when i had it i got it when i, was, I got it when i was 30 oh that's terrible how did you manage to get out of the 70s without going to one of the parties i had it when i was so young that i can the only thing i can remember is like the oatmeal baths mm-hmm. um i'm not sure who i haven't told you this story i i'm not sure how i got it but i am fairly certain that i did give it to a guy that i work with who is i think something like six or eight years older than me and as you know, the older you get, the worse it is for you. Yeah. And he yeah. was, boy, he was really, really sick. But you know what? Same problem as today. It was that macho, you've got to come to work no matter what <laughs> culture. Right. Yeah. Well, so now a bunch of people that earn $300 an hour for the company are out of commission because they have a childhood illness. Oh, that's kind of weird. Like you would think people in in my generation or older would all have gotten it as kids. Because I don't I don't know anybody like in my like high school class who didn't have chicken pox. Hmm. Like legit chicken pox, right? <laughs> legitimately. Yeah. Life is legitimately chicken pox heel. Chicken pox heel. Yeah. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Squarespace. You can learn more about Squarespace right now by visiting squarespace.com slash diffs. Friends, make your next move with Squarespace because Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea. They let you create and maintain a beautiful website. It's so easy to do. You get a unique domain, go in there and get yourself some of them templates going. Woof, you're going to get it all. It's Squarespace, baby. Maybe you want to create an online store, portfolio, a blog, whatever it is you want to do. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform, lets you do whatever you need to accomplish for you. There's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, no upgrades are ever needed. You do not have to worry about any of that stuff because Squarespace has got it covered. But they do have award-winning 24 by 7 customer support if you ever need any help. And they let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. Yes, that is part of the service. You can go in and buy a domain name right from Squarespace. All of their award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. Uh, I had occasion to um, do some updating on Squarespace recently. Where, uh, I've got a page at merlinm.com slash playlists where you can find some of my YouTube and Spotify playlists. And yeah, not so much as a way to promote myself, but just to say, um, I love how easy that is. I maintain that entire web page as a Markdown document. In NVAlt, make any of my updates in Markdown right on my computer. I preview it in Marked. Then I just copy that Markdown and paste it into a Markdown field. It's so easy to do. I love how easy it is. I just, I love using Squarespace. Uh, perhaps craziest of all, Squarespace plans start at just $12 per month. You can start a trial right now with no credit card required. You go to squarespace.com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. Okay. When you decide to sign up, use that offer code diffs, D-I-F-F-S, for 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain, and it will show your support for John Syracuse. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash diffs, offer code diffs, for 10% off your first purchase. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. Uh, it's Sunday, March 1st, in the evening. And we're back. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay, should I out myself? 
Well, so you let's start. So you let's start with the easy one. All let's right. Start. Um, this is going to be a spoiler th- slot. That in the document, mm-hmm. uh, somebody, probably you, uh, crossed out cheer. Yes. Uh, and I know we talked about it before. You watch an episode, we talked a little about it, yada, yada. I'm just wondering, I don't remember if it was crossed out last time. I'm wondering, did you like return to it and finish the series, or are you basically done with it? No, I did. I watched the whole thing. All right. So what did you think? I, don't, I think we can do this without spoiling it. What did, you, what did you think now that you saw the whole thing? Um, I thought it was really good. Um, it, 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 you know, cleared the first hurdle of like, ooh, this is, I've learned something within a few mm-hmm. minutes of watching this. Um, and it definitely cleared the bar on like, this is not exactly what I, th- it was kind of what I thought it was going to be, but much more than that. I really, oh God, John, I, stuff falls out of my brain so quickly. Who's the wonderful man? Um, the guy. Jerry. The, Jerry. How much do you love Jerry? What a yeah. great guy. Um, no, but I did. I watched it in the end and, and I don't want to spoil this, uh, but there's um they really made lemonade out of lemons in the last episode because of something i guess unforeseeable yeah yeah i, I mean i mild spoilers we're not going to spoil what actually happens but like no you you know what say say it because it's really not that bad but it was it was really jarring to go all the way through this journey like yeah. when are they going to get to the fireworks factory and then they got to the fireworks factory and we found out that they weren't allowed to film at the fireworks factory yeah like so the, you, i mean from the episode one you could see that this is building towards like there's mm-hmm. a season you Daytona, they do this thing and then there's a big competition at the end and they really emphasize even in episode one they really emphasize like you got yeah. the one you shot be on mat for daytona yeah and you got the one shot to do it it's like two and a half minutes long there's no do-overs there's no whatever your whole year builds to this one performance which is part of the tension of the entire thing and as we talked about uh, last time, all the different ways you could have shot this in terms of being character pieces or, you know, studies on the coach or concentrating on individual people or whatever. And one way you could do it is um, actually what we're going to concentrate on is here's this team and they're working towards a goal. And do they make it or not make it? Right. Mm-hmm. And they kind of uh, picked two or three of those themes and concentrated on them. Um, they did focus. One of the three themes was, hey, are we going to be successful? And as towards the end of the series came, it became a more and more pressure to do that. And the fact that I guess. Uh, you know unforeseeable or like it was like the the not the sanctioning body but the basically the network that makes money from broadcasting these would not let them shoot yeah. so basically your documentary film crew isn't allowed to come and film what you hoped would be the climax of your of this thread of your documentary which is hey does has the team do they, they're building toward this competition that they've won many years in the past and lots of pressure how are they going to do and it's just heartbreaking for the filmmakers that they don't get because they're you know they do so well filming so much i thought it was very well shot mm-hmm. and then they they just don't get to film the last thing so they have to have it like filmed you know by participants with their phones and it's just not as good as a documentary film crew would be like i'm it was sure definitely, they, it was definitely interesting though because then they also had to get creative about showing family and friends in different locations and instead of the usual shot of a bunch of people in a warehouse holding up signs and cheering it was more Sort People of personal, rooms. Yeah, yeah, which I which I really liked. Um, no, I, I thought it, I thought it was really good. The other, I mean, I know this is not a spoiler slot, but we did so we talked a little bit last time about like, hmm, what's going on with that coach, and like, who can you trust, and like, mm-hmm. who's the good guys and the bad guys. And I I I liked it from the beginning. We there's the typical sort of like, oh, these kids, you know, they're from these <clears throat> um, tough backgrounds, and some of them have had you know all kinds of family problems and money problems and being black problems and being gay problems and everybody's an underdog in some ways. Um, but I also have to say at least, I mean, to the, 
to the credit of how they shot and edited it, I do feel like you got to see some some two sides or more of, of lots of different people. Like even the coach. The coach does really does care about the kids, mm-hmm. but she really super cares about winning. She's got demon dogs, obviously. Mm-hmm. And but I I did I did like that feeling that there was um what do we say in uh, the Miyazaki movies, you know, in, in Kiki, the uh the antagonist is weather. And in this one, like there are certain people, certainly people who are doing stuff that might not be what you would prefer, or you would, you're looking for the super heartwarming, you know, kind of person who gets a kind of middle-aged person who gets a makeover on, uh, on, you know, queer eye where like they've given over their whole life to helping people. But, um, I like that about it. I like that there were, you know, even in that last episode, one of the characters that we've been following, I guess some time has elapsed and we see, I guess, really, I guess it would be in the last half or third of that episode. You know who I mean, the one character mm-hmm. who's kind of going on their own uh, journey outside of the group. Um, no, I, I'm glad you recommended it. Uh, I, I liked it a lot and I, I think it's, I think I can recommend it. It's, it's definitely one of those Netflix shows where you're going to want to watch, you know, a bunch in a row. Yeah, and I almost like the fact that it didn't have the like very flashy ending because it couldn't or whatever. I think is fits with the with the overall theme, which is that you know life is not a heartwarming documentary, uh, and sometimes things kind of go the way you think they're going to go in terms of you know if this <laughs> character looks like they're on, not on a great path. Uh, just because this thing happens in episode five doesn't mean that you know they live happily ever after. Mm-hmm. Um, I, did, I also like for the. You know, I, I found I found the kids much more sympathetic than most of the adults uh, in this, which is you know not surprising. But like like to your point before, like the you know there are kids that are from tough backgrounds or whatever. But everybody you know everybody's an underdog. Even the overdogs though, like uh, what's her name, the one with all the sponsorship deals, who uh, you know oh, Gabby, yeah. right? Gabby, She's, yeah. They show Gabby enough with of the her upsetting family, coloration, right? They show enough of her family life. That that you you look at her and like oh if you look from the outside she's got it all going for her but then you look at Jerry's life and he's had it way tougher than her but by the same time his family support system is so much better than hers mm-hmm. I like the family that's li- he's living with that's taking care of him is doing a better job than Gabby's actual parents and it's just it's heartbreaking do you think she got the do you think the mom got the villain edit a little bit it kind of seemed like that's is sort of how she the mom is. the mom and the dad are not doing gabby any favors whereas jerry's yeah, he's he's he off he definitely feels like he's the he's decided to become an entrepreneur about his daughter yeah whether she wants it or not mm-hmm. and it's just like a, a bad edit or not like the, you can like she's got a lot going for her and she's very successful but on the other hand nobody's life is perfect and if you if you want to compare apples to apples jerry's life has been harder but his current situation is more supportive her life has been easier but she doesn't have enough people looking out for her and she's gonna have to go through some kind of transition where she breaks from that and says you know what i gotta look out for myself because no one else is gonna do it that's a whole other documentary that we don't get to see and and that way i think like even the people who like you got the underdog kids but there are no non-underdog kids all these kids are Put upon by their situations because right. they, they are kids. What's, and I know what's the like guy's their... name? La, la, the kind of the the really the really good male uh, gymnast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, forget, I his forget his name as well. As right, well, but, but I, mean, yeah, he, his... he, I thought he was a coach at the beginning of the first episode. I mean, he was so like you know he's kind of critical and, and snarky, but then his character, sorry, to us, his character mm-hmm. sort of develops. And you, you know, I think like everybody, you really appreciate it. But like with Jerry, like, boy, there's, there's so many good little things to take away from this, but like Jerry's 
in the true sense, like he's inspirational in, in the sense that like, even when, so they obviously they're framing him as the guy who's always cheering for everybody all the time. He's always pumping up everybody else and helping them and all these different things. And like, even when he's on, I hate that phrase on Matt, even when he's not in at a given time, even when he's sort of snubbed for this sort of, you know, you know, somebody's okay and now they can perform. And so now you're back on the sidelines or whatever. And he's just, he was, a, he's a former fat kid who's just the, the sweetest guy in the world. But like, that is very inspirational to me. That idea of like, even if you're not going to be performing, like you could, you're still on the team is uh, a great message. And I think that's what you get in a documentary that you don't get in a movie is that in real life, the kid who's a little bit uh, heavier and who's not as athletic as the kid doesn't get to <laughs> be in like they're, they, he gets sidelined, right? Unless like literally everybody else is injured. Like, yeah, you get, you don't, just because it would be inspirational. Yeah, you get a reverse hero. Rate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you, you don't get, no, you just, I mean, he's like, and that's all, it makes it all the more heartbreaking and heartwarming that he maintains, uh, you know, uh, his positive outlook despite, you know, having happened to him, what has happened to him his entire life and what will continue to happen to him. Because if you're in this ultra competitive sport and you are not, shaped like his friend uh whose name we can't remember like an adonis uh yeah yeah you're not you're not gonna get to go in right and that's mm-hmm. and, and a movie doesn't want to do that because then you'd be coming home from a fiction movie being like it was kind of pointless and sad that in the end he his his uh more athletic uh best friend gets to be in the competition and he doesn't i was really rooting for him that's what everyone says like the big thing you take away is everyone's rooting for jerry yeah but you know that's yeah that's, that's why it's a documentary. Mm-hmm. Like life's tough. Uh, the guy's name is Ladarius. Yeah, and his you know same deal with him. Like he's got so much going for him mm-hmm. in terms of his skills and like just his general like mind for the thing. Well, he's got he's got raw talent and he's got the physicality and all the kinds of things that would benefit somebody who's doing what they do. But like you're always you're you're one you're one bad day away. You're one injury away. You're one you know, sort of penalty and, and away. Talk about demon dogs. He's got plenty of reasons. Like you see him do things that are like, why are you, why are you not able to master yourself? You are your own worst enemy. And then you learn about his background. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Now it's amazing that you can function at all. Yeah. Like again, people not looking out for him, him having to fend for himself and just holding it together by the barest of margins is just, you know. Yeah. There's also just the same beef that I have with, uh, I don't know, a lot of reporters uh, I have with all kinds of power structures, which is like the way that it becomes easier to maintain power at scale if you can make people feel off balance and if you can make them feel uneasy and if you can make them feel lucky for what they even have and unwilling to fight harder than they maybe even probably should to be able to uh, participate in the system. You know, and I think that goes for political reporters making everything into a horse race that's always just, you know, nose, nose to nose at the finish line kind of stuff. But also with, um, <clears throat> like, with obviously with Monica in particular, where she's given somebody a talk and says, you know, well, listen, you know, I, I really want you, I really want you to make it on this, but you're going to need to do this. And you, do you think you'd be able to do this particular stunt? And like, what we're not talking about a huge amount is like, well, yeah, they're going to say they can do that stunt. And if they don't do that stunt and break their neck, you get somebody else. Yeah, it's a lot like uh, I, I was looking at. I saw those, those scenes. I always thought of it like the army, where it's like 
you're asked as as the leader in actual war, you're asking people to do things that may very well uh, bring them to harm. Uh, and you can't function as a leader if you are paralyzed by that. And if you are a soldier, you can't function as a soldier if you refuse that call. And everyone involved knows that, you know, that something terrible might happen. Obviously, this is not war. It's cheerleading. But, right. It might as well be war to them. I mean, this is this is about their future. That's what I'm saying. Like they take it as seriously as that, uh, which is probably not quite an appropriate level of seriousness. The chance of, of death and injury is lower, but also the stakes are fantastically lower than war. <laughs> right. Right. Where you're fighting for, uh, you know, freedom and territory and survival. Uh, and this is just a, you know. Anyway, yeah, the, but you, the but the way, the way, one way that you incentivize those soldiers, I think, uh, at least the feeling, the result, whether you meant it to be or not, is that you're fighting that war now to protect yourself and your friends. Yeah. It, I mean, whether you can say that that's for freedom or for honor or for whatever, but I think people in the trenches are mainly just trying to get them and their uh, pals home in one piece. Yeah, and that's the, the sort of the team building they do to say we, we're a unit, we're all together, we're in this together, so on and so forth. And it's like, yeah, like they don't, no one ever has, like, to have the moment where you say, we're in this together, but only the people on the mat have their necks on the line, whereas you, Monica, are risking nothing and gaining a lot. And like, nope, that's not team spirit. Out, out you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't, right. don't want to hear that. Right. Same thing with the well, soldiers. She, she, she's the second. chicken and they're the pigs. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so that's that's not something that anyone is in a position to think about. Uh, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. It is the way it is. I feel like it's incumbent upon Monica to choose uh, to be cognizant of that and act against her own best interest uh, occasionally when she needs to put the kids' interests first, and she fails to do that on a couple of dramatic occasions in this documentary, which is also heartbreaking. And then there's the other thing of like, I don't know. I think you've you've perhaps criticized me for similar lame rhetoric uh, in a, in the distant past, but you can always come up with some reason why you're doing what you're doing. And you know, you if you can come up with a reason that inoculates you against scrutiny or criticism you basically you you can you can you know kind of do run this play that basically says well listen the reason i'm doing this for gabby is because it's a tough world out there and she's going to need a way to like be able to earn a living and so like i'm going to book her to go and do all these you know clinics or whatever mm. and then i'll just put it on her calendar i guess and, and we'll mm-hmm. just do it but if you just so like if you i mean certainly one of the many terrible things about college is the way that it becomes not only this thing that we all have to obsess about for 12 or 13 years or however long, but we've got to save for, and there's all this, all this tyranny around like what would happen if you didn't go to college. So in that case, that guy whips out the like get out of college free card and go like, oh, of course I'm booking her all this. She's going to want this revenue for her future. And like, she needs to set her up in some kind of a business instead of going like, oh, you know, mainly I just really like being on the internet and wearing this Bluetooth headset and like talking business, business, business with people. Like, you know, you're not allowed to criticize for that because all he cares about is Gabby's future. Yeah, and it's the same transition that I imagine all parents of talented children have to go through is that at some point they become an adult. Like when they're a kid, it's appropriate that you are sort of 
managing that part of their life, hopefully in a way that is constructive for them, but maybe less so, especially if there's money involved. But at a certain point, no matter what, no matter how bad or good you are at being the parent of the very talented child, eventually, that if that child continues to live, that child will become an adult, and you no longer can or should have that kind of control. And so how do you manage that transition? And Gabby's parents are not managing it well, because she is, you know, what is she in her 20s or whatever? At some point, Mm-hmm. you are should not be controlling everything that she does in her life and never asking her what she wants at all, right? You've just decided that she's going to do this and you've decided how she's going to make money and you've decided the best way for her to do it. And it's like, that's, you see that train coming from a mile away. It's like at some point it's like, look, I am my own person and either I don't want to do this anymore or I want to do it in a different way or like, like it's got to come to a head because you can't continue to function that way. That is not, that is not a su- uh, successful formula for uh you know a uh, a lifetime career to have your parents continue to dictate everything you do <sighs> yeah so thumbs up good pick yeah what to, so did I, am i the one who typed weird apple icons i'm pretty sure you are because i sure didn't weird apple icons should have written it in your dream journal mm-hmm well, i had a good one about typewriters the other night yeah, no, I think I saw that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, the thing is, I woke up and I wrote down an idea for a movie pitch. And as I was writing it down, I realized that I had dreamed it. Well, you know, uh, what's the difference? You thought up an idea for a movie pitch versus you dreamed one? It's all from the same source. No. It's come from your no, brain, whether you're awake come or not. on, that's crazy. That's like saying, like, you know, food from the grocery store is the same as food from the trash. That's crazy I mean, talk. It, it's the same food, right? Oh man, you, it's the same, you're, it's the same. you're such an essentialist. Food you really from are. The trash is the same number of particles as food from the uh, supermarket. Uh, <laughs> what are you, Neil deGrasse Tyson? No, that's uh, Doctor Manhattan. Come on. <sighs> All right. Remember the living body and dead body? I say number of particles. Sorry, I have to turn off my devo- my devices talking to me. Uh, yes, 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 yes. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, so in this in this analogy, yeah. which is the trash can? Is is your dreaming brain the trash you're can? You're the one who you told dream- me that, that you're the one. You're uh, brain uh, brain junk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Well, but you but you write it down, so it takes on a certain dignity. Recorded <laughs> it. <laughs> I uh, here's the thing. Here, okay, so so some people, including at least one young person at my home, if you give me too much of a dream that feels like too much of a story, I tend to go hmm. I think you're doing some editorializing. I think my dreams are more pure. Oh, yeah, or po- post- post-rationalization. You fill in the pieces, you make something out of it. Well, because if, I mean, the, the thing is, if you tell somebody a real dream, at least m- one of my real dreams, like, if it makes any sense, you know the person's making, just making it up. Yeah, or, or just, or filled in the gaps, because yeah. maybe you've got the pieces. Because you're then... turning it into a story. You, you're basically yeah. doing an edit on your own story. Mm-hmm. Anyway... I wasn't sure people would even remember that, though. Do you remember that going? You, you, there's a typewriter, there's a piece of paper in it, and you go and you, you do the quick brown fox or, or you know, uh, Ridgewood Junior High sucks or whatever. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Yeah, my, I had a typewriter as a kid. Right? My parents did, and I would dig it out of their closet. No, but I mean, like, when you go to the, I'm talking about when you go to the store. Or, like, when you go to the pen aisle at the art supply store, mm, and they got the little sheets the of paper. paper. Yeah. I think it's always yeah. interesting what people, you know, choose, choose to uh, leave behind. Yeah. Yeah. Usually they just tear all these days. They just tear off all of the paper and then uh, write on the little place, piece of plastics underneath where all the paper was scorched earth. Yeah, yeah. How does that happen? So we did cheer. Um, you probably don't want to talk about Mac window management, do you? 
No, we're skipping right. We're going right to topics. No, you don't want to do that. I, 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 it's got to be done. No, you don't want to do that. Just gotta be, we got to rip, rip the bandaid off. All right. Uh, <laughs> well, in the what? Probably two years that I've been assigned Millennium Actress. Mm-hmm. The great news is that I, through personal striving and my own <laughs> dedication to the craft, I've gotten further in that movie in the last week or so than I've ever gotten before. The trend is in the right direction. Oh, no, we're, it's, it's definitely on. And, I, and I, I, um, I'm not even going to make a joke. It's really good. It's really good. Um, those two guys are so good. Now, okay, now if I go, so you're, now your, your reassignment of this homework, because I've still got an incomplete on this, is you're saying, uh, I do have to go back and watch it from the beginning. Isn't it like 90 minutes? I don't remember how long it is, but it's not long. I hurt, I hurt my foot. We had a doctor's appointment. We've had a sleepover. We've mm-hmm. got cleanup from the no, sleepover. I'm not, I'm, I'm just saying, like, yeah. I feel like, I feel like over the course of the years. Yeah. A 90-ish minute well, slot when you, in when your you life. say it that way, it sounds could, bad. When you try to look at it from a, from a standpoint of maths. I mean, you watched all of Cheer. <laughs> this is, you know, you're a bully. A little bit. Oh, no, if I, I, yeah, I'm a bully. You're I, a I'm bully not bu- a little I, bit. I just check in with you. All I, all I want is a check-in. All right, so we've checked all right, in. I'll, okay. I'm going to start oh, doing check-ins with, with you. What do you think of that, smart guy? I only have one uh, question. Did you clear the 50% mark? Just so, um, I, can, so I can update my graph. Okay. You got an infographic there? <laughs> uh, so I got, I think I'm around halfway. I should have a wait. You know, wait. So I watched it, I think, on Plex. I should be able to go see. I, I can't mm. I turn off Plex. Um, but it's it's a wild movie. There's a lot going on in that movie. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's good that you're seeing the first little bits multiple times because maybe you'll, you know. Yeah, maybe it'll all imprint on it more. But, like, it reminds me a little bit of, like, there's that one. There's an episode of Next Generation. Uh, I think it's called Yesterday's Enterprise. And it was one of those that um, I don't know if it was on the max list. I think it might be. It's a really interesting episode. Uh, I don't want to give you anything away about it because it's it's worth watching. But I will say that, like, um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just goofy in the head. But by the end of that, I was like, my mind is blown by this episode. There's so much going on, like, with different time frames and stuff. I think there are maybe, – maybe I read too much into it. But I like something toothy like that. And I feel it like that with this, where they're running around behind her in all these places. And they're like, what? Yeah. I was all, what? It's good. It's very ambitious. Right. Keep trying. I believe right. in you. Thanks. Thanks. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Bowl and Branch. You can learn more about Bowl and Branch right now by going to bowlandbranch.com. That's B O L L A N D B R A N C H.com. Check them out, Bowl and Branch. Yeah, Bowl and Branch. You heard of them? Well, they are the folks who make the softest organic sheets and luxury bedding. And if you want to add a little bit of luxury to your life, boy, this one is for you. Uh, th- these things are amazing. Uh, they sent me some of these sheets, and they are just they are just tremendous. We gave them one washing, and uh, I'm told by everybody who uses these that they get better with every washing. But even after that one, boy, we were so happy. Um, these are tremendous. Bowl and Branch products are made with uncompromised quality and attention to detail every step of the way. They're meticulously crafted from pure 100% organic cotton. And they're such high quality because of that organic long staple cotton, which actually makes Bowen Branch sheets get softer over time. There it is. They get softer over time. So soft, they're the only bedding loved by three U.S. presidents. I wonder which three. I want to know more about that. Could it be McKinley? He liked to sleep. 
didn't already know, Bowling Branch really are the good guys when it comes to ethical manufacturing. All their factories prioritize workers' empowerment and sustainable incomes. 100% of their packaging is made from recycled paper, and they're the first manufacturer of linens to be fair trade certified. That's a feather in their cap. You really got to give these a try. You got, uh, shipping is always free. You can try them out for 30 nights risk-free. And right now you get 50 American dollars off your first set of sheets when you go to bowlandbranch.com and use the very special promo code DIFFS. That's D-I-F-F-S, right? Go there. Now, upgrade your betting. You won't regret it. Bowlandbranch.com. I'm going to spell it one more time. B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. Promo code DIFFS. These are some nice-ass sheets. You really need to get these. Our thanks to Bowling Branch for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. Hmm. That's a weird one. Yeah, you pick. You put this down here underneath. I my, sometimes my wake up in the middle of the night. And you know what I say to myself? I, I say to myself, I've decided you, not to let it bother me. You're walking in your sleep, you would say. Mm-hmm. That's one of the secrets that I keep mm-hmm. when I'm walking in my sleep. Uh, I sometimes I wake was, up. I was, I was doing the Billy Joel song. Come on. Do it again. In the middle of the night, I go walk in my sleep. It's one of his later ones. Maybe you're not familiar. Mm. Mm. Is it after Innocent Man? Yes. Mm. That's why you, may, you might not be familiar. Anyway, continue. Continue. I didn't want to derail you. Go ahead. That doesn't matter. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night <clears throat> and I say, okay, I'm just going to hang out for a while, listen to something. And I don't know what happens, but I have, my, my, my brain has tremendous fecundity in the middle of the night. And uh, I, I try not to do stuff like look at Twitter or, or read news articles. And so what I'll do is often I will listen to music or like I'll read something in Instapaper. And that inspires me to go down some kind of a rabbit hole. I forget how this happened precisely. But I went on one of my perhaps... I don't want to say annual, but maybe every 18 months, I'll go on a short Billy Joel tear and, um, and find myself jumping through, uh, like a lot of his catalog. Uh, and I'll, I'll be happy to go into some of my background on Billy Joel, but you know, it occurs to me, you've talked about Billy Joel and he is from Long Island, correct? Like a local boy made good. Mm-hmm. What? No, sheep's head? No, where's he from? Sheep's head? Sheep's head? Is that, is that Boston? I don't, I don't actually know where he's from. Mm. <laughs> sheep's head is not well, it that's the kind of name you'd give to a beach in new york uh okay sure well g- give me another beach name uh, jones beach jones beach now you Rob- see manhattan beach is in Moses? la you, you, you want to name, you want names? i don't think he was born on the beach <laughs> that's jimmy buffett yeah <laughs> Uh, uh, so I, uh, anyway, the point being, I, I, it's a, this is a very open-ended conversation. Um, I wanted to talk about Billy Joel results. I want to talk about your history with Billy Joel. Uh, let's talk a little bit about my history with Billy Joel. Uh, I'm not sure if there's a topic here, but I feel like it's something that is, um, maybe it's not on like exactly like your U2 level list, but Billy Joel seems like he's part of an important New York state of mind, if you like, for you. Yeah, it's always difficult for me to to get an idea of how outsiders, people from away, as they say in Maine, uh, view Billy Joel. Because from (laughs) outsiders, from from the inside, the Grammy Award winning Billy Joel. (laughs) Yeah. If you are born and raised on Long Island. When I was growing up, it was very difficult. Like everybody, everybody accepted Billy Joel 
as a thing that existed and you either liked Billy Joel or were fine with it. There wasn't a lot of Billy Joel backlash because hmm. Billy Joel was from Long Island. You were from Long Island. And whether you liked the music or not, there was certain pride. Again, Local Boy made good, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So growing up, Billy Joel was everywhere on the radio, playing on vinyl in my house. Everybody I knew knew all the songs. I don't think there are any rabid Billy Joel fans, but it would be like saying, I hate Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Or like Tom Hanks. Not even Tom Hanks. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or like some, like like a Christmas, not even like White Christmas where it's like, oh, I don't like that particular song because I don't like the way this person sings it. It's like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. There is not even practically a canonical version of it. It's just a song that kids would sing to themselves around Christmas time. And it's like, well, it's not my favorite song and I don't care, but, you know, I don't dislike it. It's just, it's Rudolph. Like, you're like, happy birthday. It's like, mm. that's not my, you know, it's just, it's just an accepted part of life. And then, of course, like so many things, leaving Long Island, going off to college, seeing the wider world, learning that nobody else knows how to make bagels and pizza and all sorts mm-hmm. of other things that you learn when you leave Long Island, finally, um, that the rest of the world doesn't have the same view of Billy Joel. Uh, some people may not have heard of him or may have vaguely vaguely remember him and that would be like someone not having heard of rudolph the red-nosed reindeer again the the hegemony of christianity and, and christmas being an accepted thing despite the fact that 50 percent of the people i grew up with were jewish um but uh, not only might they not be into billy joel some people might dislike billy joel and have mean things to say about mm-hmm. billy joel and that was like all right so maybe billy joel is not your favorite but like who who can dislike Billy Joel, like everybody accepts him at least, right? And mm-hmm. but no, there were people out there who think Billy Joel is bad and say mean things about him. And this is, you know, there are people who think Billy Joel is bad for very different reasons, which I think is usually makes for an interesting person. Yeah, and like, and you would like, you would expect anything. I mean, especially in the music world, like things are popular, and then there's backlash, right? Mm-hmm. You're too popular now. I need to tear you down. But from my perspective on the inside, Billy Joel never got big enough to be torn down in the wider world. He was never Michael Jackson. He was never, you know, even U2 or R.E.M. for that matter. He was just always there, steady, mm-hmm. doing his thing, never getting quite big enough to to uh, initiate some sort of national, international backlash, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And yet, uh, you, I encounter people in my later years leaving now and who were very upset about billy joel upset about the meager amount of success he did have upset about people who who enjoy the music saying you shouldn't enjoy it because it's not good i doesn't i i have to i have to just what are you talking about he was huge he was right, one but, of the biggest artists of his time and not that he's not, he's not dead but i mean like the run from um let's skip over piano man I'm going to say from the street. Now, this is extremely personal and opinionated, but for me, the run from the stranger through innocent man is a hell of a thing. And he did real good. Oh, Jesus. 52nd Street was, has sold over 7 million copies. Glass Houses, 
7 million copies. But I'm thinking in terms of someone who gets so big that they need to have backlash. Like, yeah. you know, like, he's not like Beyonce boy, or the something. boy band's phenomenon, even mm-hmm. the Beatles, Bruce Springsteen, okay. uh, yeah. you too, like the very, very top, like an artist doesn't get backlash until they get so big that people are angry at how big you have to be worthy are. of backlash. Until you tell people that you're bigger than Jesus and mm-hmm. then you get backlash, right? And now it's all Billy this. Joel was mm-hmm. very successful, but I don't think he ever cracked that number one, two or three spot in terms of a musical artist in the public consciousness. There was always other artists in the public consciousness that were ahead of him at any given point, right? And, you know, it's kind of, kind of like bands that are big in a particular scene. They may be the number one band in a particular scene, but it takes a Nirvana to be the number one band in the world and get above everybody for any amount of time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I think he was mostly immune from that kind of backlash. So that's why I had never heard anything bad about him, really. Um but, you know, having come from an environment where you don't really think too much about it, it's just this music that I enjoy that makes references to places that I know. It almost seems like a kind of like a thing that you own privately, like, oh, you know, this is music for us. And it's cool that it broke out to the wider world and, uh, you know, see his videos on MTV and the whole world loves, loves him and we're proud that he comes from our area or whatever. And it's all just fine. Right. And uh, and have having it sort of exposed to the harsh light of day and hearing the criticisms makes you reflect on it and say, have I ever really thought about Billy Joel as serious as a serious, you know, even when I was getting into other music, you would think about. It. Well, like, like even just doing a reappraisal as an adult where you have more yeah. context for deciding how you feel about uh, a, a record or a time or a career, you know, pivot. Or case. even just being critical, like you were just talking about it, like, oh, this album's better than that. Because I was thinking about, like, which which is my favorite U2 album? And has this album compared to that album? And the early R.E.M. versus late R.E.M. And all, like, also, but I never applied that thinking to Billy Joel because it was all just sort of this homogenous, acceptable stew of stuff. See, but, but, hmm, okay. Boy, I don't understand a lot of this. He... Okay, so I think the main, the main, I'm going to guess, the main rap a lot of people have against Billy Joel is that he's lame. And in the sense of, you, you take a bunch of his songs, his ballads, um, and I'm not saying I agree with this, per se, but uh, I do think there is a, there is a flavor of, uh, he's just not talented, or he's, or he's, he's a he's hack. basic. Yes, that he's normie. Okay, now I think a, another version of that is that, he may be talented, but maybe like his output does not endure. Like he's not like, um, there's that kind of stuff. And I think there's a case that could be made. And again, I'm not saying I agree with this. There's a case that could be made and this pivots back to what you were just saying. I think is that, um, is that he's kind of a genre chaser. Like he'll, he'll like run around. He's like, Oh, new wave is popular. I need to have some new wave inflected music and stuff like that. But in any case, the, 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 the thread that runs through a lot of it is there's something, um, posed and inauthentic about the man and his music, and and also he was popular in the eighties, which which you know can be a strike. I'm not saying I agree with any of that, but I'm going to say in in summary, I think that's a lot of the rap that you hear from people. And what I'm hearing from you is you were too close to him in some ways to have that sort of uh, distance to even be aware of that, let alone you know decide whether you think it's true or not. Yeah, and then, and then later, like when I did turn to him with a more critical eye it's fairly easy to see that at any given point whatever it was that he was doing there's usually somebody you could name who was doing pretty much the same thing but better Hmm. right you know sometimes sometimes very close by like at various points when he was in his most springsteen-esque 
Springsteen was mm-hmm. right over there, mm-hmm. doing it better, right? In the rock and roll kind of era. Well, maybe there were like a, sort of like a little bit like Elton John in some things. Yeah, no, sure. There's always somebody doing it a little bit better. And that's why I said he's like basic in terms of the amount of talent he had and how he chose to do it was always focused on sort of the fat part of the bell curve of both the audience and also that's where he was coming from. He was in the fat part of the bell curve in terms of his talent and his sensibilities and what he wanted to talk about and what he was thinking and feeling. And so was his audience. And that's why that's why, you know, the slam is that you're basic is that you don't have you're not. You're not at one of the edges of the bell curve. You're not eccentric in any particular way. It makes you less interesting. You're not striving mm-hmm. to transcend or stretch. So your songs are and, and your, your songs are very up the middle. And it's not because you're choosing to put them off the middle. It's because that's who you are. And, you know, and that's that's I feel like the most endearing and enduring thing about Billy Joel is that. It seems to me that he has always been true. Like I never, I never pegged him as a phony. I just figured like this is what's in him, and <laughs> this is what he's expressing, and it is fairly straightforward. And he's earnest about it. And I find that I continue to find that charming because mm-hmm. it's not well, artifice. I mean, he's, he's, he's a not... performer. I mean, it would be like, oh, you know, I saw Ultimate Warrior at the mall this weekend, and he wasn't wearing his fringe. What a dick. It's like, well, he's that's his job. His job is to put on that outfit and go wrestle. And it's like it's Billy Joel's a creative career, like anybody's, to 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 try and figure out where he's going to uh, apply his interests and uh, to create something that makes best use of of the talents that he does have. And it's, it's the older I get, the weirder that seems. And I used to hundred percent buy into that, you know. But he also he also has this this suffering of like. If you're somebody who's interested in like, you know, rock history, you'll know that there are certain kinds of bands where like, obviously there's the kinds of bands like say like a Nick Drake or something that were very much not appreciated so much in their time, but became critical darlings maybe because they died young. But then there's also these bands that famously didn't get a lot of respect from critics. Like, uh, I think maybe the most famous is probably Black Sabbath where like Black Sabbath had such a popular following um, but, but still somehow people were like, oh, you know, oh, this band's terrible. They have no talent. Queen, I think for a long time was not taken very seriously. Probably the Ramones at some point, you know what I mean? But with, um, but with Billy Joel, I mean, well, I hope we get to the point where we get to talk about how I think he's actually really good in some ways. Um, but he did, I think, win a lot of awards and sold a lot of records and then all that does is just provide more fuel for the whole like your basic argument. Yeah. Uh, so like to to be popular, to have popular music, at some point you have to be in that fat part of the Belcher like, curve. Like Michael Jackson in at his peak was mm-hmm. making pop music that was very appealing to a broad swath, swath of people, right? But even within that period of time when that was happening, uh it was kind of understood that his talent in a few areas is singular and uh, you know like like a shooting star like a giant spike and it's being harnessed to produce some of the best pop music that we've seen in a long time that is broadly appealing but the person making it is not like confined to just like he's pushing the envelope of pop music he's defining pop music right or any, any sort of artist who ends up being a big hit like you don't you don't end up being that huge without appealing to that fat part of the bell curve. But with Billy Joel, you feel like that's where he is. And there is, he doesn't have the option 
to go elsewhere. There is no weird Billy Joel music where he has much more intellectual music and strange musical ideas. And like that doesn't exist in him. So he he's a creature of the fat part of the bell curve, unlike so many other artists that briefly, you know, like I think Radiohead is a great example. Radiohead was in the fat part of the bell curve. Oh, so briefly. Mm-hmm. I'm just stopping on its way, <laughs> you know, the band came, was from somewhere, was trying to figure itself out, found itself in the zeitgeist at just the right time, and did not stay there. Just continued to evolve and change, and the bell curve did not follow it, and, you know, and like, and so when they were in there, no one was saying, oh, Radio had your bass because you have a hit song, except for the most hardcore of the angry fans, right? Mm-hmm. If anything, like, you know. If anything, the Benz was more uh, straight up the middle than the later albums that were more popular, right? But mm-hmm. Radiohead just kept going. That you know that rock ship's going in a single direction. Whereas Billy Joel, I feel like, noodled around to try to get into the fat part of the bell curve to pull off the idea of a pop song, uh, you know, an earnest, heartfelt pop song that speaks to people and that comes from his heart and that you know has a hook. And you know, he got there and he would have stayed there forever if he could have. And still, like, it strives to be there, and that is where he lives. Hmm. I um, <clears throat> I, I I really like some of these records an awful lot, and I like some of these songs an awful lot. The quick version of the history is like I, you know, I I was. Let me just see if I can peg an age to any of this. So I was uh ten or eleven, for example, when the Stranger came out, which I I think of in my head as like the the break breakthrough. I mean, I know Piano Man, the song was popular and. I guess the record sold four million. Wow, in nineteen seventy three. But I feel like his um, imperial period, such as it was, really begins with the stranger. And so I would hear it on the radio. I the first record of his that I owned, I think, was a cassette of Glass Houses. But there was plenty enough Billy Joel to hear on the radio. Um, that's that's the the whistle stop of my history. I think he is uh, above maybe. Above all else, I think he is a, a very good songwriter, and I think his gift his gift for melody and uh, Beatles esque, you know, sort of chord changes. I don't know. I, I think it's I, I think it benefits him when he does some of this genre stuff. Some of it's better than others, but um, I but like for example, you know, um, I, I think he actually yeah yeah I know he credited Beethoven with this, but you know the song this night on um, Innocent Man is based on uh the the chorus is kind of based on a beethoven piece i mean it is it's a beethoven piece but like i've had that song in my head for over a week and it's it's driving me out of my goddamn it's you know it's beethoven but uh i think it's i think his songwriting is so good and i think his love obvious love of the beatles uh, really comes to life on on especially some of the bridges. He has he writes really good bridges. Sometimes his lyrics are very frustrating to me because they're they're not sort of correct English. But you can't hang a graduation on the wall. But I um I, I really like his stuff, and I, I wanted to say so. I wanted to interrogate that a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up the Beatles. I, sometimes I think about like how things could have been different for him in a band situation, like not as Billy Joel, but as a member of a Beatles-esque band. Because in a band like that, if you have a Billy Joel, that's an incredible asset, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. I, mean, I don't want to go into like, imagine if just Paul McCartney was a solo artist, because we kind of got to see that. But like, 
imagine if Paul McCartney was never in the Beatles and was a solo artist, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any any four person band sh- would have be lucky to have a Billy Joel in their ranks. And together, if there are a bunch of other talented people. I mean, just just as a musician, the guy the guy is a very, very good piano player. Musician, performer, songwriter, mm-hmm. like he brings a lot. There are things that he doesn't bring, and that's where you need the other people to fill in those gaps. And a band featuring Billy Joel, and he was in bands, right? But a band featuring Billy Joel and some kind of John Lennon analog, some kind of Brian Eno analog, like just pick whoever you want to mix in that band with him. Put him in a band with David Bowie, like who knows what could have happened, right? That the the alchemy that is the rock band can benefit from a Billy Joel. The fact that he broke through as a solo artist and stayed that way necessarily confined him to his own limitations. But, you know, he's he's like mentioned that songwriting music, he's obviously so incredibly naturally talented like what he's good at seems not to be a struggle for mm-hmm. him to be good at it seems it seems like a natural part of his being and that's part of why i feel like he's never never from my perspective fretted about transcending that mm-hmm. because it's just it's just like it's just like walking for him right that this is what he's good at and he's happy when he's able to harness what he's good at to make a good song and if he's not able to harness it like he's not looking for something else if he if he gets all the wood behind that arrow and comes out with the song and it sounds like a Billy Joel song, seems to me that he's happy. We're happy to hear it. And it seems like, it, it, you know, he, he's not making that song going, oh, this just sounds like a Billy Joel song, which is which is a, a thing that affects many rock bands in a certain phase in their career that they're angry because some song they just made sounds like the band. Right. I don't think Billy Joel was ever angry, ever angry to make a song that sounds like a Billy Joel song. Well, I, I'm not sure what a Billy Joel's song like if you heard somebody play uh, a Billy Joel song that wasn't Billy Joel, what where would you f- locate the Billy Joelness of it? I think in the performances that are memorable, I want to talk about his bridges in a second, but I, I do feel like he has a certain kind of vocal style that is you're either going to like or not like. I happen to like, but like what is it that makes a Billy Joel song a Billy Joel song? Do? I think there's a certain certain rhythm to how the song progresses, and definitely the lyrics as well. Uh, I mean, you could you could say the instrumentation and featuring of the piano much more than you would imagine a rock band featuring because it became his thing and stuff like that. But just like sort good, of, it was a, he had a good band. Yeah, I, but yeah. like, but you know, to, again, con- I always contrast it to Bruce Springsteen, who's also had a large band. Different choices for instrumentation, right? Similar performers in terms of, of the singular person energy, but very different choices in how to, to assemble everything. But I, if I think of a Billy Joel song where I can't hear his voice, mm-hmm. and like just like there's sort of this this rhythm of how they sort of lump and trumble along that I feel like would shine through even without hearing the lyrics mm-hmm. or the voice. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I do. I do. Yeah. And he's got certain ticks. This is, these are just songs from the stranger. <clears throat> I'm going to try not to sing too much cause it's really annoying, but, but like go back and listen to the stranger. Um, so you think about, don't be afraid to try again. Everyone mm-hmm. goes south every now and that is a very good, and very contrasting melodic bridge from the edginess of the, how does it start? Well, we all have a face that we hide away forever. It's, it's like much more edgy. Mm-hmm. That right there. Boom. Edgy in a Billy Joel way. <laughs> yeah. No, but see, you're, you're not thinking with the brain of, of 1977 or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Cause I mean, when you say like, Oh, this person, uh, they did better. They did it better. I don't know. He had a very, uh, 
I was going to say urban, but that means something different encoded now. He had a very like New York City kind of sound. He he had a very like, at least to me, what I would imagine is like if you walked into a bar and saw a band, like on a Wednesday night, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it sounded like a band playing stuff from The Stranger. Um, so let me go do some other ones here. Let's see. Is this a good one? Um, oh, just the way you are. Like his, I, I don't know if it's his most famous song, but I think probably most his most lauded at the time. And another great bridge. I need to know that you will always be the same old someone that I knew. Like great, another really great contrasting bridge, and and, and seemingly effortless. Like you you hear it and you're like, yes, oh, that's that's a natural fit. Well, right? What and else? You... Well, what else would fit there? That's exactly the perfect bridge for that song. Oh God, uh, only the good die young. Remember? Um, uh, let's see. Say, mother told you all I could ever give you was a reputation. She never cared for me. Did she ever say a prayer for me? Another great one. She's always a woman. Oh, lame, lame. But like, oh, she takes care of herself. Mm-hmm. She can wait if she wants. <laughs> these are really good songs. And all of these bridges are like McCartney-worthy bridges to me. And like, that's not, that's not an untalented person. I mean, like, being able to put that together and to create a, um, here's a term they use in um, journalism. I hear like lots of magazines and newspapers you're talking about putting together like a package. Like it's not a story, it's not two stories, it's not a series, it's a package. Like we're gonna do a whole package about a theme or a topic. And like I feel like that's kind of in a, in a to me a very interesting way. Like I, I don't know how you come up with records, like especially some of his middle period records. I don't know how you come up with them without some kind of like maybe it's Phil Ramon, but like whoever is bringing in the vision for how we put together, um, I think with Innocent Man, obviously, gonna be very like all, every song on there you could basically trace to a given band in the 60s. It's not as simple as saying, oh, it's a doo-wop album. Well, no, I mean, like, each of those songs actually kind of sounds like a tribute to a different band. Hmm. But they're also unmistakably, if I may say, Billy Joel songs. And I I think that's a different, that's another kind of talent. Like I've always said about uh, John Roderick, I feel like he has a gift for sequencing. The way that he, the order that he puts songs in for his albums like, it not only seems like it couldn't be in any other order, but if you changed the order of these songs, it would be half an order of magnitude as good. And I, I think, you know, I think we have to laud people who have who have some gift in planning and editing and how they put these kinds of things together. I don't know. I don't know why I feel the need to, like, defend him, but I was up in the middle of the night and listened to a bunch of his songs, and I think he's pretty great. Yeah, I think I think the the most common slam against him and the easiest one to see some uh based on is the is in the lyrics and not in terms of like broad strokes because broad strokes the lyrics are good and form good songs it's in the details and that, that they are that they're too straightforward and too on the nose that literally speaking you can't just come out and say it to the degree that he does that's mm-hmm. part of what puts him in the fat part of the bell curve because regular people don't want to have to puzzle out what you're talking about and you do not have to puzzle it out with billy joel he comes right out and tells you and he does it in an artful and poetic way very often, but there's not a lot of subtext, right? And that yeah, it, there's to, there's certain... not there's not going to be a lot of confusion about what good good night Saigon is meant to invoke. Yeah, or even just a stranger, right? He mm-hmm. comes out and just explains this is what the song is about, <laughs> right? In the lyrics, right? It is it even even if it's a little bit off, it's like oh, who is the stranger? I see there's a little bit of a metaphor there, but not really. The entertainer, <laughs> like it's just. It's right there. I'm guessing like, it's that creepy mask on the pillow. <laughs> right. And it's because it, his his talent is not for uh, allegory and symbolism and sophisticated ways to talk around uh, a larger issue to artfully illuminate it by filling in the negative space around it. That's not what he's good at. 
if he was in a band, perhaps you could have someone to fill those in. But every once in a while, you need the song where that doesn't happen, or you need the chorus where that doesn't happen, or whatever. All of his songs come right out and explain to you exactly what they're about. And I think it fits with the way he writes the music. Mm-hmm. But if you go through all of them, it can be tiresome to say, okay, we get it. You're the piano man. Man, I don't know. When I <clears throat> when I flip on, what was I? I mean, I think I was just going kind of going chronologically and listening to my favorite songs. But like, um, you know, I, it, these songs were very much written, I think, for his 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 voice. Uh, now here you are with your faith and your Peter Pan advice. You have no scars on your face and you cannot handle pressure. And now we're back into the song. Ah, so good. Uh, and but like, let's see. I don't have anything too intelligent. Nylon curtain was interesting because, and as you know, I'm an older man than you. Um, Nylon curtain came out like, well, I mean, this is this is a somewhat self centered statement. But I, uh, I think MTV had started, and I want to say August of '81. I got it in, I want to say April or May of '82, um, and it was around that time that Nylon Curtain came out, and it was. It used to be such a big deal. I think I think MTV was always obviously very happy or proud or excited when someone took videos seriously and they would treat something as art in a lot of ways. Like, oh my God, you've got to hear this. You got to see this video for Only the Lonely by um, uh, by Motels or you've got to check out this crazy new video by whomever. But he came out, when he came out with the video for Pressure, which yeah, is pretty a silly room, by... A room full is drowning in packing peanuts, right? Yeah, yeah. I still strike, remember that video. Psych like 1, Psych 2, what do you know, you know? Mm-hmm. But, like, when that video came out, like, that was, it was, it, it was so smart to be doing uh, these this stuff for MTV, because MTV was where, you know, the wind was blowing. Mm-hmm. But it was also that, you know, I don't know. I just thought it was, it was great timing in that sense. He, he uh, I, uh, from his label or from his team or whatever, like... Doing all that stuff was great. But then, yeah, then you had the one-two punch of Allentown and Goodnight Saigon. Allentown's a good song, though. It's really, it's a... I mean, they're all good songs. It's just that if you listen to the lyrics, you can get angry about how straightforward they are, which I think is pointless hmm. and missing the point. And, you know, you, like, it, if the song, if you find yourself humming along to the song and thinking about it and enjoying it <laughs> and getting enough from the lyrics to understand that there's a story that it's telling and appreciating the story, that's... That's fine as far as I'm concerned. Like, again, like in my non-critical mind, all these songs are worst case acceptable, but pretty much I like all of them. Like, I was just saying, it was like... I get a surge every time any of these... Dude, believe it, all for Lena. When I listen to all for Lena, I get a little... I'm like, this is such a good song. It's like, my God. Yes, yes. What's your favorite Billy Joel song? Well, God, that's a tough... I mean, that's... It's an almost possibility. It's like, I think I had an easier time with my best U2 song. Well, do you um, think, do you think, so you can do the one, you could do the starter, your so favorite or the best? What's m- what, one, one of my, my, my wedding song was just the way you are mm-hmm. chosen by mutual assent. That's I, a good song. Uh, that certainly has a soft spot in my heart for that reason. I mean, I, I guess if I, this is, this is not, all right, this is maybe favorite. It's not best. You can, you can come back later and change this if you want to think about it and come back, but I, I would like an off the dome. Give me an off the dome answer. I've got an easy sentimental favor, which is scenes from Italian Restaurant, right? Uh-huh. Which that's is, a bottle of red, bottle of white. Yeah, which is just this incredible Shaggy Dog Springsteen wannabe song that's entirely about uh, a life and an experience that just predates my adolescence, right? Like, so he's in a generation ahead of me, right? But you could still see the echoes of that thing. And it was a song that was close to all of our hearts in high school. 
because it was again, you know, the, the, a generation before us talking about the things that we were kind of doing a more modern version of. Is it a great song? Song? It's not even one of his best, but it is maybe a sentimental favorite. Melodically, there's lots of other th- songs that are way more interesting. You, we already you already talked about a couple of them. My favorite song. I, I always like the piano part on "Always a Woman." Mm-hmm. Trying to learn how to play it a thousand times. Uh, I'm not good at it. It's really hard. Uh, if I mean, it's probably easy if you know how to play piano, but I don't. Um, he's he's got a really fast right hand. Yeah, and very expressive. Yeah. It's just so hard to pick because I like mm-hmm. I look through this track list and like I like all these songs. These I are know. all my favorite. Like I there's know. they're all like hmm. I could probably it's probably easier to pick at least you now. <laughs> that wasn't the question, but yeah. I'll allow it. I'll let me I'll do a few. I'm just gonna sketch these out a little bit and try to narrow it down. In some ways I think I think moving out might be the most Billy Joel Billy Joel song. And I think he it's, fills it's that one out. It's really good, but it's like it's got a lot of like and again, you're not going to appreciate this because you were very, very young probably when this came out. This song is in my bones. I heard it my whole life. But like the way that song starts, you know, it's uh, to, to say that this is a, just like some simp that makes soft rock about girls. I don't know. I, uh, there's something, there's a lot about identity in his stuff. There's a lot about um, dignity and status, not, not status exactly, but like I think there are themes that go through. Uh, Stranger might be my favorite overall album, but Honesty was probably the first song of his I remember really, really liking on the radio. Obviously, I love my life. Glass Houses has not aged exceedingly well, but I do think, you know, for what it is, it's good. Uh, Innocent Man, I cannot believe that record came out in 1983. God, that's a long time. But those songs, so one time when we were in uh, Rhode Island uh, for... uh, as you say, vacation with our family. Um, the people whose house we were renting had a bunch of uh, tons of cassettes, you know, in those things that look like little suitcases with the mm-hmm. latch on it. Yeah, I've and got they them. Had, yeah, they had so many cassettes, and one of them was that that one greatest hits package. And mm-hmm. so that we would volumes uh, one and two. Yeah, we would listen to that, and like, man, it, it all just came flooding. Like, I remember loving. Um, uh, oh, longest time, like like. Remember when that song first came out? And that oh, that, whoa! Mm-hmm. It's like oh my god, it just gives me shivers, and I would get straight back into it. I I do think that I think Innocent Man is. I have not listened to it all the way through in forever, but like, there's a lot of there were seven singles from that album, John. Yeah, no. You look at the track list and you're like, these were all on one album. Yeah, because they because each one of them, especially on Long Island, each one of them was like just a staple of the radio when that album was out. Like you would just hear it forever. And to this day, I feel like we used to make this joke when we would vacation on Long Island. I'd drive down there with my kids, and we'd know we get to Long Island if you tuned to the radio station back when we still <laughs> listened to the radio instead of iPods. Right, and you started hearing Billy Joel songs, and you'd hear. The ones you expected to hear, you'd hear it the longest time. You'd hear "Innocent Man." <laughs> that's like that's like when you start hearing all all, all country and religious stations. You know, you're yeah. near my old house. Yeah, you'd hear yeah. "Uptown Girl" for crying out loud. It's like like it's like the '80s never ended in this in this place. It's <laughs> just it's always like it's kind of like the thing. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, the uh, the radio station tagline was hits from the '70s, the '80s, and today. <laughs> and I, I swear to you that there are radio stations still saying hits from the '70s, '80s, uh-huh. and today. Yeah, right. And today is basically the '90s, the 2000s, 2010s, like '70s, '80s, and today. You can just keep saying that forever. <laughs> it's like, they're, and they're playing the same music plus modern stuff mixed in. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> 
I can't believe Robert Chris. This is so bizarre. You know, Robert Chris Gow, man, he's a tough critic. Um, I mean, there are some things that that he that he does love, but like he's he's he scores. Um, he does not score on a curve. He gave Greatest Hits one and two, Volume one and two, an A minus. It's pretty wild. Like greatest Hits one and two is well, like Billy Joel is the type of artist that is perfectly tuned for a Greatest Hits album. Because you're like, Mm -hmm. he has so many good songs, so densely packed that when you make a Greatest Hits album, you're like, these are all, like, there is nothing in there that you're like, did this deserve to be on the Greatest Hits, especially in Long Island? It's like, every single one of these songs, wasn't every single one of these a number one on every radio station in Long Island for for months at a time? Like, these are all, you know, perfect and amazing. Just no fat whatsoever. Again, from the perspective of of a, you know, Billy Joel fan, Long Island fan, like, it's just... That's what people want out of these things. It's like the Eagles' greatest hits, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Oh, There's, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where, 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 they have broad appeal, uh, but people aren't maybe familiar with the albums. But if you put together all their best stuff and they have a long career, it's it's just perfect. And you know, I think I saw a lot of copies. I saw a lot of copies of that double CD when CDs became a thing, the, the two package. You know, mm-hmm. for like you know after the cassettes went out, it's it's a type of sort of silent sales that i think a lot of people own it and listen to it and enjoy it but don't want to talk about it because it's not cool mm-hmm. well i i don't know if this is how it happened i'd have to go back and retrace my history but um i sometimes uh, the particular kind of rabbit hole i'll go down will be something involving music it might be charts sometimes it'll just be these weird european guys that make a compilation of a bunch of performances somewhere or like here's the top you know 20 songs of this year in belgium or whatever and I, I enjoy those a lot. That's how I rediscovered that uh, England Dan and John Ford Cooley song. Talk about a great song. I'd really love to see you tonight. Beautiful song. I might be from one of those collections um, where I was kind of rediscovering Billy Joel and then going back and watching some of his very cocaine-fueled old videos. Hmm. Um, but I, I, I totally agree with you. Maybe it's, maybe it's not cool, but uncool music that you love and listen to is so much more interesting than cool music you don't love or listen to exactly yeah and even even the man obviously i mean you mentioned this the cocaine fueled things and his his i thought very interesting videos his videos were Mm -hmm. more more interesting than his you know arguably more interesting than his music was in terms of pressing the boundaries of what was possible because again that's what i think about uptown girl like it's 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 him with the ranch and christy brinkley and everything it's so memorable yeah and the pressure video very arty and Mm -hmm. weird and like you could have done a much more straightforward you know things that stick in your mind uh but like you know a it's good that he survived that era he he came out of it especially i mean you know what happened with him and his business stuff like oh, he's yeah, another, a, he's another a, one of these people yeah, who yeah. would just take into the cleaners by mm-hmm. a manager who was supposedly taking care of them. It, it, it's, it's almost like that, like VH1 behind the music was this disembodied specter back in the seventies <laughs> and eighties saying, you are building material for me. Yes. Go through the cliched thing. <laughs> Have your manager steal Delicious. all your money. This will be great on VH1. Bring What's me the that? story about Ozzy Osbourne snorting a line of ants. <laughs> Bring it to me. <laughs> Like, yeah, just the, it's so amazing that like uh, how I guess it's because, you know, they didn't, you know, there was no Internet. They didn't talk to each other, but they all like everybody went through the same thing with the same manager stealing all of their money. And this is just. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, it's so it's so terrible. But, but but anyway, well, in the case of the Stones, in the case of the Stones, I think basically I'm trying to remember how this happened. But, you know, 
Mick's a smart guy. He's a, he is more than anything. Mick Jagger's a businessman. He'd gone to business school, and he's he's a very very smart guy, and kind of the adult in the room, um, emotionally and financially. Um, but he, uh, but yeah, but supposedly they were like, they were told like, Hey, you know, you got to dump this, this business manager you're working with. Oh, what's the guy's name? Peter was not Peter Grant. But anyway, they had moved from one terrible manager to a thousand times worse manager. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then they were screwed and had to move to France with heroin. Yeah. But now I think about Billy Joel today though, did you read, I think you did, because I think we passed it back and forth to each other a couple of years ago. There was an, uh, some, uh, article about Billy Joel. In modern times, this is probably in the mid-2010s or something, saying hmm. it was like a day in the life of Billy Joel, sort of catching up with him, a long-form magazine-style article. Oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't remember that, but I'd love to see it. So, oh, God, I wish I could remember even where this was. But anyway, here was the gist of it. It was like a day with Billy Joel. So the reporter shows up at his house. He's got a house on the beach in Long Island because he's a Long Island boy, and that's, of course, that's what you get if you're rich. He's from, he was born in the Bronx, it looks like. And he, he's got his, his big Long Island house, and he's in... Billy Joel fashion, he is playing Madison Square Garden. Um, and they go through, like, what what does it take? What is, what is his deal in terms of, like, uh, performing stuff? He's not really making new albums, mm -hmm. right? But he still performs, right? Uh, and he doesn't need to perform, right? He's got he's got plenty of money, right? He came I imagine, out of the I, Yeah, I think he, he covered all the, the stuff from the past. But I, I, I imagine, I, I, I question, not to interrupt you, but I question everything now in the age of, streaming like i don't i don't know how much i even know about what i assume to be correct i know a lot of people were planning on a nest egg people who were recording records in the 70s and 80s i have a feeling a lot of their retirement plan went away i mean i think his retirement plan went away many times over but i think he managed to get it back right so he's now he's got enough he's not super duper wealthy but he's you know he's got his nice house he's got a piano that he noodles away on and and has some fun and stuff like that and he's got his family life but he and but he's also performing right and for him to perform it's like Look, I don't, I don't want. I'm not going to be touring. I don't want to deal with all that hassle. I'm not on cocaine anymore. <laughs> um, I, I, also, I do not have first-hand knowledge of that. It's just that his music just just perspires the made of cocaine energy that, that I mean, Roderick and I have talked about. Anybody who was a recording artist in the late '70s and early '80s, <laughs> and it was very successful. It's almost impossible that they were not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what was normal back then was the style at the time. Yeah, uh, you know. Anyway, mm -hmm. um, and so his deal is he's going to be playing Madison Square Garden, mm -hmm. uh, which is close by because he's on Long Island, right? And so he's he's noodling on the piano. He's got a concert that night. His deal is that a helicopter flies him from his house to Madison Square Garden. Oh, no traffic. He, perfor he performs. Mm -hmm. He makes some obscene amount of money in the multiple millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And then he flies back home. To his place and like if you look at like the schedule of like what it takes like his commute is like less than most people's commute to work he shows up <laughs> he sings the freaking oh, the, total, hits. the total turnaround time yeah. i see what you're saying so like door to door for you to have a day of work is this long door to door for billy joel to have an evening of work is this long right mm -hmm. and he, he makes multiple millions of dollars and he sings the hits mm -hmm. he does not try to show you tracks from his new album that he's working on yeah. he sings the hits yes. he sings what you want to hear in the order that you want to hear them <laughs> <laughs> right piano man is the freaking encore or whatever <laughs> you know like and, and that's it's a workmanlike thing mm -hmm. that he gives his all to 
And then he flies back to his house on Long Island. He's flown back. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to travel. <laughs> he, he doesn't want to tour. Flown back to his house. But but exactly. But for four million dollars, he will spend an hour and thirty five minutes on stage and fifteen I minutes. I bet he made a lot of ways. people very happy. <laughs> and make it, you know packed, sold out Madison Square Garden, and he'll do that like seven nights a week, and you know every every couple of months, and like. If you think about that, like <laughs> if you add up the the number of millions he makes just from doing those sold out Madison Square Garden uh, concerts that are incredibly, you know, like talk about arranging your life so that is has the minimal impact on you, but you can still do a good job and still make millions of dollars. And then most of the time you're in your beach house uh, noodling around on your grand piano and talking to reporters about what you think about music. And God, it's such a. It's sort of a happy ending to think about. Uh, and, and, you know, he's got the difficulties with the, you know, Christy Brinkley and that whole mm-hmm. thing and family issues and all sorts of stuff like yeah. that. But in general, it painted a portrait of someone who was not trying to relive the glory days, was not angry that he wasn't more successful, had a good perspective on life, was still going out there and entertaining people. Uh, not because he needed the millions of dollars, but also being savvy enough to say, but I'm not, I'm, what's it, what's it going to take to get me out of my house on the beach? This is what's going to take. 15 minute commute, three, $4 million. I just figured it out. It took me till just this second to figure it out. You're not envious of Billy Joel, but you look at Billy Joel and you go, huh, that's a gig I could handle. Well, I, I think of it as someone, like, like I said, like you need, I what did you say? You stipulated I, you need $20 million to call it quits, right? Well, I I would be more lazy than he is, but but the whole idea that uh, but I think it's efficient. I think it's efficient to say for seven days per year, I'm going to do MSG in a helicopter, like get in, get out, get some bank. Mm-hmm. You know that this this sounds like you know when you you know you you don't like to touch this, this third rail too much, but you know you don't want to you don't love working. You're good at vacations. You're good at forgetting about work. You probably would love to be Billy Joel. It's, it, he strikes me as someone who f- who eventually became good at being rich. And good at being rich means that you're Ooh, not constantly striving to make more money, that you're able to relax mm-hmm. and enjoy what you've gotten. And part of his enjoyment is entertaining people mm-hmm. because that's a, that's the sort of the, the curse of, you know, many entertainers is they do this and become famous for it because they have a drive to do it. And at a certain point, if people don't want to hear from you anymore, then that can be sad as a performer. Like, you know, I had these hits, but no one wants to, you know, to hear me anymore. Whereas Billy Joel, because of who he is and where he's from, until he's dead, there will he'll be able to sell out Madison Square Garden. Because like I said, the whole of Long Island loves him, but it's the law. Uh, <laughs> and they are more or less the same age as him. So they're aging together. And at any given point, for a couple of days a year, he can sell out Madison Square Garden filled with a bunch of people from Long Island, the New York metro area. It's really efficient. It's extremely efficient. And everybody's happy. Yeah. And he's not there being like angry that he's not got a number one record mm-hmm. and he's not trying to reinvent himself for the 900th time and he's not saying I'm only a multimillionaire and not a billionaire. You know what? Right? Yeah, I got another angle on this. You just pointed something out to me. Um, I, I don't want to dramatize this too much, but a lot of the music I like um is you know about broken lives and broken people i mean that's the the life is difficult and people write songs about that it's interesting though that like he not quite to the level of say randy newman but he does have characters in his songs i would say Mm -hmm. i mean obviously something like piano man it's all characters wall to wall i mean a lot of them tend to be uh you know 
people of a certain ethnicity <laughs> from the New York Somebody metro area, recognize. but yeah, yeah, not a, not, a, not a big stretch, but yeah. But you know, it, there is something I think admirable. There's something laudable, admirable about somebody who, uh, in that case, is you know, well, I, I say good for him for making the money. I mean, it's, it's honest work. The um, I do think it's cool though that he's not a refuse Nick, but also it's interesting that he is able to his music and performances are able to age better because not, hmm, I haven't thought this through, but unlike many bands of those eras, it is not music by young people about how difficult it is to be young right now. I mean, that's part of it. There, there's, there's a little bit of a that. A little I mean, bit of that, but it's not about m- moving but, out in the stranger. Or, you okay. Know. But like, but like, let's say, Oh, uh, what's a, what's a weird example? Mm, no, I don't want to, I, I mean, I, was gonna I mean, s- the thing is, he seemed to be, another reason I relate to them is he was like, he seemed like he was nostalgic before his time. Like, Sinister Italian Restaurant is a song you write when you're 50, looking back at your high yes. school years. And he wrote it when he was like 22 or whatever. It's like, it was not that long ago, right? Mm-hmm. He was already nostalgic for a past that was like two years in the past. But like, it's there's something that is kind of nicely beneficial. It's one thing to say like, okay, you're going to be like, uh, be an actor who plays different kinds of roles and you like the challenge of having to adapt and, you know, these different uh, approaches to this particular Othello or whatever, whatever that is. But like, it's, it's interesting to me that like, he's, he's able to play Billy Joel because, you know, Billy Joel, it, now he's a 70 year old guy. He's singing songs from the seventies and eighties and I guess nineties and today, <laughs> but, <laughs> but he, uh, but I think that's, I think it's kind of cool that, how can I put this? There's something so depressing about the Rolling Stones. Like, good for them. I'm glad, you mm-hmm. know, but like, mm-hmm. but I miss Bill Wyman and I, I miss Charlie, Charlie Watts. And like, I'm glad, you know, I like it when anybody can do the thing that they love to do. But, you know, it, it's, it's something that was a joke probably as early as the early to mid 70s. It's like, how long are these guys going to be playing Satisfaction? Well, now we know mm-hmm. the answer to that. And so mm-hmm. they have to be snotty nosed, privileged misogynists in the year of our Lord, 2020, and singing these, singing these, boy, some of those first few Stones records, great music and just really cringe lyrics. Just every song is about how women are stupid bitches. Um, there's actually a song called Stupid Girl. That's a very good song and a very bad song. But like in his case, I'm not, how, how do I put this? He's, he's up there playing Billy Joel. Like he doesn't have to like say, oh, this is a song about like when I, you know, um, when I was, uh, when I was a sad sack, you know, punk rocker, or this isn't from my, like he, there is like a, there's characters inside of that. I don't know. I just feel like he's fortunate that like, he doesn't sound like a dingling today singing these songs in the way that a lot of 70 year old people singing 40 year old songs sound. Like, like Bruce Springsteen, I think he's always had the perspective of even when he was in the middle of it, Mm -hmm. uh, as sort of as an observer of saying, I'm in the middle of it, but I'm going to write as if I'm outside of it. And describe a story of a person who is not me, but is very much like me. Mm-hmm. But I'm doing it from the outside. I'm doing it from the outside in. So, like, here we are observing Anthony working at the grocery store, right? Mm-hmm. Here here we are Saving talking about the stranger, right? Yeah. And, and the entertainer. I'm in the entertainment industry, but this song is totally not about me. But it kind of is. But yeah. And so, like, he can sing those songs forever because it is, it is like a historical document, right? In the same way that Bruce Springsteen songs are about a bunch of characters who are very much like Bruce Springsteen, the people he grew up with, but he can sing them forever because it's like, it's like historical fiction. It's like, and it not like you were saying, not historical fiction in the way of like, I wrote this when I was a young jerk, right? None of his songs are like that. He's like, I wrote this about a young jerk. 
And that young jerk was a person who lived in the 70s, and I wrote a song about him, but that wasn't me, well, right? Well, yeah, and this at this point, I'm getting a little bit structuralist, but, like, the thing is, Bruce Springsteen, even in, or even especially, really, uh, like, you think, um, While well, the Innocent in the E Street Shuffle, those, and starting around that time, or eating even, like, to an extent, greetings from Asbury Park, he is inhabiting a character named Bruce Springsteen, just in the same way that Dennis Wilson was the only person in the Beach Boys who surfed. So, like, at the time, you're kind of one order of reality is too strong a word, but you're, you're one order of authenticity. I don't know what the word is, but, like, you can re- write really good songs about surfing without being a surfer. You know, I, I, think, I think Springsteen's character slightly exaggerated his working class-ness, for example. I don't think— Sure. I, I think both of them lean heavily on people who they knew or fictionalized versions of people who they knew. I mean, like, Glory Days is not about Bruce Springsteen. It's about all these people that might have been people that he knew singing right. about their Glory Days, right? And that right there, that's all Billy Joel's stock and trade. They're like, he, he can inhabit the character. I mean, this, this is also why Randy Newman, for example, got a bad rap for uh, short people. Because it like because people, including me, were not getting what was happening in the song because they weren't familiar with like what a dark horse Randy Newman is writing from a certain POV, um, and and so I guess I guess what I'm saying is in terms of career longevity, if you're going to create a character that you inhabit with your name, it would be beneficial to think about how well that will age in the future. Now, like a Chris Gaines, I, I bet I bet Garth Brooks had not completely thought through. The Chris Gaines thing. Mm, yeah. Justin McElroy uh, tells a story about going to the first, I think it was his first concert, but a, a concert he went to with his parents when he was a kid. They, according to Justin, they went to see Gordon Lightfoot and Gordon <laughs> Lightfoot walked out and announced that he would not be playing. At the top of the show, announced he would not be playing the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald <laughs> and half of the audience turned and walked out. <laughs> like, I don't know how you do that more than once. Like if you do that once, you go, Ooh, my bad. But if you do that every night, like. You just got to weed out the weak ones. <laughs> That's like, right. Exactly. I mean, you got to sit out a little like, honey like, pot. Like, like Billy Joel, for all he might, you know, cringe about some of the songs he wrote when he was young, just seems entirely comfortable comfortable with his catalog which doesn't mean that he loves all of his catalog but he's comfortable with the idea that these are things that i wrote and these are things that some people want to hear and i don't feel like he plays them through gritted teeth like he plays them with gusto no no well did you did you watch snl did you watch snl last night did you see david byrne no i saw you uh, posting about oh. it but i didn't actually see it he had a, a very he had a very interesting band the whole band stands and kind of dances while they're playing with like strap-on instruments and he came out and did um once in a lifetime and it was great it, you know, there was no sense, as with like a Billy Joel, you don't get the sense that they're going, uh. I, I get the sense that, that David Byrne went through went through a phase where he did not want to play Once in a Lifetime, but now he's out of it. And I feel like Billy Joel, if there was a phase where he was sore about the hits, I don't remember it. Like, I feel like he never, huh. he never went into that phase where he's like, I don't, I'm not going to be playing that, right? Whereas David Byrne, I don't know enough of his history to know, but I feel like there was definitely a phase where he did not want to play Once in a Lifetime. Well, there was another very important character in David Byrne's life that played a role in why he was somewhat difficult in Talking Heads. Would you want to guess what that character is? I don't know about Talking Heads. It's white and powdery, John. Oh, yeah. Tina Weymouth and Chris Franz like, that's it. We got to (laughs) bounce. 